When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Selma, the Academy Award-winning film now available on Blu-ray Combo Pack and DVD. Selma tells the incredible true story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic effort to ensure voting rights for all Americans. From Paramount Pictures, rated PG-13. And by The Honest Company, featuring safe products for your family and home. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day and receive a free soy candle worth $20. Go to FreeHonest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's FreeHonest.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap, the stupid and contagious edition. It's Wednesday, May 6th, 2015. On today's show, Kurt Cobain's Montage of Heck is the new documentary on HBO about the frontman for Nirvana. And then punching and getting punched in the face appears to have been a life-changing experience for Slate's Seth Stevenson. We'll ask him why. And finally, the dad bod, a nice balance between a beer gut and working out. What is this phenomenon all about? We will discuss. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. She's back. I'm back. It's good to be back. Yay. Okay, digging in. Ooh, Steve, before we start, as as we're welcoming yeah. Dana back, uh, we should tease our Slate Plus segment at the end of okay. the show. Yeah. So we're going to do lightning round with Dana. We're going to just whip through the six topics we covered while she was away and well, almost all six of them. We'll see. This was my idea because I was listening to the show while I was away, and I was basically shouting into my earbuds and responding to you guys. So I wanted a little lightning round chance to respond in real time. Yeah, so we're going to give Dana the chance to uh, tell us what she thought about all the things we discussed in her absence uh, after the show. All right, moving on. Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, is a cunningly edited two hours of art, music, journals, Super 8 films, and audio montages assembled with permission from the various Cobain archives and formal ones scattered around the world. It's an almost excruciatingly intimate look inside the world of a fragile young man, the man who pulled both himself and punk rock into the commercial mainstream. Let's listen to a clip. Kurt, he was full of energy, always busy. I had this old rocking chair in the corner of the front room. He'd be upside down with his head hanging off where your legs would be and his feet up on the back of the rocking chair, going 90 miles an hour in it, going so fast and it would be hitting the back of the wall. And he'd be repeating everything verbatim off Sesame Street. Would you like to hear my voice? Sprinkle with emotion. And I thought, before I have this sick baby, we've got to try to get this calmed down. So I take him to the pediatrician, Dr. Fulton. He did a rapid eye movement test with a flashlight in his eyes, and he went, okay, we got trouble here. Well, Dana, it's uh, awesome to have you back on the show. Let's start with an insight about this documentary. It's, uh, we'll obviously get to Kurt Cobain and the contributions of Nirvana to popular music and on and on and on. But talk to me a little bit about it as a, as a movie. 
I mean, I don't know about you guys. I was very interested in the subject matter and attached to the subject matter. And like you said, we'll get into that and, and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana's impact later. But I was disappointed by the way it was framed in this documentary. This documentary did something that really bothers me in documentaries about artists in particular, which is that it didn't make the provenance of various audio and visual components clear at all. So, for example, there were some really interesting audio that were these old homemade cassette tapes that Kurt Cobain used to make before he was famous. I think he was a teenager and he would sort of do these vocal improvisations and put in sounds and sort of make little montages. In fact, the title Montage of Heck of this documentary, I think, comes from the name of one of those mixtapes. So there would be things like that playing, but then there would be times that there seemed to be an actor maybe reading his voice and it wasn't clear whether... It was still the tape or something being recreated. Same thing with the visuals where his notebooks were used a lot, I thought, in a fascinating way that he kept these scribbly spiral notebooks that were full of lists of songs and song lyrics and little drawings. And, you know, he drew in a very simple, childlike way, but drawing seemed like an important part of his process. And so that was really interesting. But then they would turn into these animations that looked like, you know, had obviously been just brought in by the director, Brett Morgan. So I didn't really like that hybrid that was supposed to make it so sort of visually stimulating. I just thought it was unclear. Julia, I'm very curious to know, I could have guessed Dana's relationship to Nirvana, which sounds very much like mine. It was a kind of a revelation that remains, you know, incredibly important to the way I think about music and on and on and on. I couldn't guess what your relationship to Nirvana is. It must have that, I mean, Bleach must have come out when you were like one years old or something. I'm not that young, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm getting old too. No, I mean, you know, I like was in middle school when grunge happened, you know, I read Sassy Magazine. I, that cover of Courtney Love kissing Kurt Cobain, like was delivered with a thunk through my mailbox. And I, you know, read every page of it. And my friends had like deep crushes on Kurt Cobain. He's so cute, you know, and we danced to that music in the gym, you know, at my prep school. And I remember hearing about his suicide while I think watching a track meet. I remember being in this like very like red brick, bright green grass, bright blue track, like crisp springy prep school day in a kind of incongruous sunshine and learning that he'd killed himself. And it was sort of one of those an early time when a cultural figure that had meaning to me and my friends growing up died in a tragic way. So, you know, I grew up with this music and I enjoyed it and liked it. I would not say that I had like, it wasn't the album that spoke to me, like the album that I felt had been made from on high to speak to me, the young teen as I've discussed on the show many times, is is uh, Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville. And Nirvana was just sort of in the air to me. But this documentary, sort of, sort of because of that, because I grew up in an ambient slosh of Nirvana-ness, uh, but never really thought about it critically or, or had read any of the biographies or had been interested enough to pursue it more deeply, I was looking forward to watching a documentary that would teach me more about this music and where it came from and, you know, where it fit. And... I this documentary left me feeling hopelessly square. I mean, maybe if you're making a documentary about a seminal punk figure who scrambles the norms of music making, it's just hopelessly square to have like talking heads explaining things or just be super, I don't know, archival and precise about the origin of the materials and the which song came from where and you know whatever even just basically like what albums did they make and what years did they come out no i mean the whole Mm -hmm. thing was so inside like even when they introduce uh i actually don't think i've ever said his name out loud chris novoselic how do you say novoselic anyway did they chiron him as kurt's friend it's like he's 
he's one of the founding musicians. Well, that was in a Nirvana. moment. Well, that was a moment where you felt the meddling fingers of Francis Bean Cobain, who was the executive producer, and probably Courtney Love as well. Right? This was a family-approved documentary. So, right, Chris Novoselic is strangely built as Kurt's friend. Dave Grohl is not in the documentary at all. Apparently, yeah. I read, I think, in Variety that they interviewed him for it but then didn't include the footage. But the sort of the Kurtz friend sort of suggests that, you know, the non-interviewed musicians (laughs) in his life are not Kurtz friends. (laughs) We don't want to imagine their Chiron. So, yeah, there was definitely a sense that this was a story of Kurt Cobain forming a band. And and it was very glossed over. Like, then he decided to form a band. And then these guys, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic, joined him, you know. And there wasn't really any sense of the band coming together. That was not an important part of the story, Mm -hmm. we've been told. Yeah, and even backing it up a little further, there was no sense of how this somewhat, I mean, not somewhat... Acutely tortured, emotionally tortured, and self-torturing kid made the transition to musicianship, right? He sort of goes from being hyperactive, kind of semi-orphaned in the sense that he's bounced between kind of fragmented versions of a family, picked on at school, completely emotionally lost. And then the next thing you know, he's just kind of fully formed as a, as a punk rock musician. But let me quickly play the part of the square talking head that this documentary, I think in some ways to its credit, decided not to include. Watching the documentary, it occurred to me for the first time in a long time what his role in popular music was and how big it was. And that Smells Like Teen Spirit occupies a very specific place in the culture that's so big it's almost hard to see. And what that is basically is the punk rock had been around for almost 20 years and in some forms absolutely for 20 years. I mean, the Stooges and the New York Dolls preceded uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit by about two decades and had just never, ever entered into the mainstream. I mean, maybe, but aggressive, noisy, like kind of almost avowedly antisocial rock and roll of the kind, you know, pioneered by the Stooges and, and taken up by, you know, the Pistols and on and on. In the United States, at least, had never had never broken through. And with Nevermind, it broke through completely. And it was through that break that Liz Fair came and all of those acts from the 90s. I mean, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, for better and for worse, remade the public ear or the mass ear relative to this kind of music. Um, I believe Nevermind has sold tens of millions of copies. I mean, it is one of the best-selling rock and roll albums of all time, which if you grew up with the Pistols and the Clash and the Jam and the Stooges and the New York Dolls, the idea that it would break through and remake people's expectation of what a hard rock and roll song would sound like was mind-blowing. And I think the emotional thrust of the documentary is here's a person whose personality was organized around his hatred of the Reagan 80s. That comes through very clear. His hatred of the culture of like success and the bullying nature of success in American life, and it took him up and swallowed him whole. So so in some sense, I found the documentary kind of a double revelation. Steve, that is so interesting. That makes me want to read the chapter in your book about Kurt Cobain. Like, I'm fascinated in a critical analysis. Is of, there one? Or no, just no, I'm just, I'm just, giving, I'm just moving the finish line forward for Steve. Like, you, can, you can impute any number of unwritten chapters to my book. They're, in, they're at infinity now. Steve's outline just preceded by another Roman numeral, <laughs> MCX111. No, Throw it on the invisible pile. I mean, that's the thing to me that was frustrating about this documentary, and, you know, that may also speak to why this particular stripe of music wasn't the music that most spoke to me personally as a kid, even though it's, you know, I admire it and I think it's beautiful. And I've had all apologies in my head since the credits rolled last night. That's just a perfect, gorgeous song. But like, he's a fascinating and interesting cultural figure, whether you want the cultural portrait of rejection of the Reagan 80s or the kind of psychiatric portrait of this developmentally 
troubled kid. I think the poignancy and power of the film comes from the fact that it is authorized by all these family members, his mom, his dad, his stepmom, you know, Courtney Love participates and Francis Bean Cobain, who's basically estranged or at least has had a very complicated relationship with Courtney Love, is producing it. So there's all of these figures who loved him trying to sort through where his suicide came from, I think. And in some ways, talking very directly and owning up to the roles they feel like they may have played in it. A whole other fascination of this film is the discrepancy between the very distinctive and fascinating and off-putting but fascinating face of Courtney Love in the early 90s and her, like, plastic real housewife Oh, I just have to say the afterlife of Courtney Love has made me so sad because I really loved that whole album and I thought Courtney Love was a great musician and singer at the time. No, I mean, whole Live Through This to me is like a much more powerful and important album than Nevermind. That's an amazing album. But I'm curious, Dana, what did Nirvana mean to you? I mean, I guess to me, they did hit at exactly the time in my life where, you know, I was able to hear them and needed to hear them. I'm actually the same age as Kurt Cobain. I was born a few months before him, I think, and he was 27 when he died. And I was 27. And, you know, most of my friends were about 27. Obviously, I was not living, you know, the troubled existence of a Kurt Cobain, but it was definitely a tumultuous, melodramatic, you know, time of heartbreak and loss in my life. And that sound that they made was sort of, was a sound of the time that that spoke to me particularly. And this makes me really sad to see that the documentary ends with this, this moment and doesn't really go that much into it, but particularly that Unplugged concert they played, because I think it was the first time that I could hear the lyrics to their songs. You know, you could hear the anger before and maybe once in a while like catch a, a lyric here and there, but I don't think I realized sort of what a poet he was as a lyricist and also as a singer of other people's lyrics and what a sense of language and delivery he had until that Unplugged MTV show, which I remember at the time, it's not like MTV Unplugged was a show that I tuned into often, but in the equivalent of social media of the time, you know, just the sort of buzz of people talking, I realized, oh, you've got to watch this episode of MTV Unplugged. It's great. There has not been another episode Mm -hmm. like it. And sure enough, it's this gem-like, perfect acoustic show with the most surprising song choices and the most incredible delivery. And just, it made this perfect album, which of course came out after he died and then became, you know, like a quintuple platinum best-selling album, probably because he had just died. But that moment of seeing him on MTV, I remember, made me realize, oh, this guy is a real musician. He's going to be around. He's going to do other things besides this, like, loud, angry, you know, new, new nouveau punk that he's been playing, and I have to see him live. You know, that was just sort of a a thing that was in my mind, like, when I can, I'm going to see Nirvana live. Of course, three months later, after it aired, he was dead. One thing I wanted to say quickly before we move on is it occurred to me while watching this, there are two extremes of kinds of artists, I think. One is the person who just has a kind of creative will to power, and they're going to make it one way or the other, and they're just going in search of an incidental medium for their creative will to power. At the very other extreme is, is someone who, if they don't find the right thing, they're going to be completely lost. Like if they don't find their thing, they're going to have nothing. And Cobain was that second one, that second extreme in in the extreme. And that was what really hit me about the first hour of the documentary, which I think is vastly more captivating than the second hour. I mean, not Coincidentally, it's up until he becomes famous that the documentary is is gripping. And then after which it becomes a little bit banal because it's about drugs and uh, inability to handle money, drugs, and fame. But up until then, you realize the extent to which had this kid not found rock and roll, he was not going to make it. He would have died a decade earlier, almost without question. And the extent to which music was salvific, salvific for him is in the music 
and that's what young people heard in it. it it saved him it will save me i mean i i know that that doesn't from the standpoint of my own middle age i know that that equation doesn't really hold up but when you are hearing that music you believe it and that's why it has that unbelievable power yeah, I know we're running out of time, Steve, but that portrait of him as an artist who had to do that thing that he did, I think, is is very aptly captured by the documentary. And it's one of the things that it does capture well. I think you hear it in his own voice, in fact, him talking about it in either an interview or one of those tapes or something and saying, you know, that first time that he got together to play with friends, play rock and roll in a room, basically. And he said our audience was two people who hated us and hated our music, you know, but it felt like the thing I had been meant to be doing all my life. Yeah, but that, it was a gig. Yeah, But it was a gig for us, right? Yeah. And that was a, a vision of him that I, I hadn't had before this documentary. I mean, when he was famous, he was always, of course, withdrawing from fame with this kind of, um, you know, almost this this disgust for his own notoriety, right? And his little mohair sweaters and putting putting on this very, very modest air. But his ambition and the part of him that really Mm. wanted to make a great rock band and wrote a note to them when they were first practicing saying a great rock band must practice at least five times a week. And, you know, was really sort of running a tight ship and trying to make the best rock band he could. That was a surprising element for me of the documentary and, and an inspiring one. Okay, Dana, pick a pick a song. What Nirvana song are we going out on here? From this segment or from the whole show? I think that's oh, going to be Ann Hepperman's choice. I, no, but for the for the whole show, it's always up to the Hep, the Hep Cat. <laughs> but but for this segment, we have to go out on Nirvana, the sound I, of Nirvana. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to pick something acoustic, and then I'll be uncool because I won't no, be doing the early stuff. It's Nirvana. You can't <laughs> fuck this up. <laughs> I know, let's do all apologies, because it's been going through Julia's head. Oh, you didn't just pick all apologies. Oh, fuck you. All right, (laughs) fuck me. Wait for endorsements, I will talk more. (laughs) What else should I be? All apologies. What else should I say? All right, well, Kurt Cobain montage of Heck is the documentary on HBO about uh, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. Please watch it and tell us what you think and what that band meant to you. We'd love to hear Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week is Selma, the terrific movie about Martin Luther King, which we discussed a few months ago on the show. For the ad, we should just go back and play the whole segment where we all quelled about the movie and how fantastic it was. But it is now available on a Blu-ray combo pack and DVD. From the producers of 12 Years a Slave and acclaimed director Ava DuVernay comes the true story of courage and hope that changed the world forever. Golden Globe nominee David Oyelowo shines as Martin Luther King Jr., who rallied his followers on the historic march from Selma to Montgomery in the face of violent opposition, an event that became a milestone victory for the civil rights movement. Own Selma on Blu-ray and DVD today from Paramount Pictures, rated PG-13. I will say we don't always circle back to the movies that we've talked about in the past, but this movie, I've been thinking about this movie like fairly regularly since we saw it. I think it was not just a powerful viewing experience, but a really interesting portrait of an effort at social change in the face of systemic injustice that feels super pertinent as we look at changes around gay rights and gay marriage, as we have a conversation around trans rights, and of course, as we talk about race and poverty and the relationships between poor, mostly black communities and police departments around the country. Like, I feel like there's a whole set of conversations swirling through the culture this year and efforts at change that that have cast my mind back towards this movie since then. I think it's like more than a bunch of great performances. It's like a really interesting moment and an interesting process piece that I just keep thinking about. So I would heartily commend all of our listeners who have not yet seen it to uh, go see it. And it is now available to you for purchase. So check it out. Selma. 
Yeah, Julian, it's worth noting that Ava DuVernay, the writer and director of Selma, is still a part of those conversations, um, including her next upcoming feature project, which is about Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath. So, you know, I think she's going to continue to be a director to watch. If you haven't seen Selma, you should. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. Seth Stevenson is a longtime contributor to Slate Magazine and a very close friend of this program. It's great to have him back on to talk about his piece about boxing. Seth, hey, welcome to the program. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Your piece is called What It's Like to Hit a Man. Let me quote from it a little bit, and then we'll dig in. Myself, uh, you say, I've never harbored an urge to beat anybody up. In that instant before I first unleashed my fist at Mike's face, that was Pesca, I hope. I could sense myself struggling to punch. It wasn't Pesca. I could sense myself struggling to punch through millennia of human social compacts, years of conditioning from my parents and teachers, and not for nothing the deep-seated pacifism, you might term it wussiness, that dwells within me. Seth, one part of the arc of this wonderful piece of uh, first-person journalism is that it actually felt great to hit another person once you broke through the crust of uh, social convention. The subhead of the piece is, I tried boxing. It was scary how good it felt. What led you to do this, and and why was it so exhilarating? Well, I I was out in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine invited me to come try boxing at his boxing gym, which is actually Manny Pacquiao's gym, where he trains wildcard boxing. And I had never done it before. I hadn't really thought about doing it that much before. Um, We got out, and mostly at first I just did the exercises, hitting the heavy bags, doing the sit-ups. It's a great workout. And then uh, at the end, after I'd gone a few times, my, my friend said, hey, why don't we just do a little controlled sparring? So we actually started throwing punches at each other, and they were very choreographed. We knew what was coming. No one was going to hurt each other. Um, But it was sort of exhilarating to throw a punch at my friend's head and also felt very weird, and I could feel myself trying to overcome all these instilled things within me. And I had to figure out where that was going to go, and and it made me really curious about the violent urges within me that I think are within all of us to some degree, and I wanted to explore it more. And so when I got back to New York, I joined uh, Gleason's Gym, which is a very famous boxing gym here in New York, and I started training a lot. And the more I trained, the more I wanted to see what it was really like to square off against a person instead of against a heavy bag. Mm. The good thing about me is that if you hit me in the head, it pops right off. And that actually is a b- better way to take a blow. I can just stick it right back on. It's totally fine. But I've noticed an I interesting pattern. <laughs> yes. I've noticed a pattern, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, which is that boxing is plunging in popularity as a spectator sport, but it's surging in popularity as a workout or a hobby. So people obviously get a super intense workout, but they're getting something else. So put me in the ring, Seth Stevenson. The first time you really got in, competitively into a ring where someone was really trying to like kind of beat the crap out of you and vice versa. What was that like? Well, my trainer put me in. I begged my trainer. So I'd signed up for this fantasy boxing camp. And before I went, I wanted to have at least a little experience in the ring, having sparred at least once before I got to this camp and suddenly was thrown in the ring against people. So I begged my trainer, even though it's probably a little early for me to be doing it. He agreed to put me in the ring against. He had a a group of sort of white collar boxers. He had his serious younger guys who were training to become professional boxers. And then he had this group of slightly older white collar guys who liked to do the training and liked to get in the ring once a week and, and, and pummel each other. So he threw me in with these white collar guys. The first guy I fought against was this very slender South Asian yuppie guy named Vic, and he had been training a lot longer than me. 
And uh, he knew how to hit me. He could see where my openings were, and he would hit me. And uh, I just sort of waded into them. The first time I got in against him, I had I had been doing all this training. I had strategy. I knew what I was supposed to do. But the second, it just all falls apart instantly. When the bell rings and there's someone throwing fists at you, you just forget it all. You just cover up. You just want to huddle. I ended up weirdly kind of just wading into the punches because I knew I was supposed to be aggressive and not coward. <laughs> and I just sort of forgot. And I also, I didn't feel them. I mean, my adrenaline was so high that I could barely even feel the fact that I was getting hit until later on the subway ride home when I was like, my stomach was just aching and my head was a little dizzy. Um, and I realized, oh yeah, you were having punches thrown at you. It's it's a very strange feeling. I'm sure the more you do it, the more you get used to it. But I, I even after I, I quit eventually, and I, I never got to the point where it felt normal. I have a couple things to say about that. First of all, that, that visceral feeling that you describe in that first moment in the ring with Vic was just so beautifully done in the story. And I guess that's a compliment to Julia, too, because I assume you edited this, right? Uh, I will accept no compliments for this piece, <laughs> except for putting Laureate headlines on the top of it. That was all but, Seth. I mean, I just feel like as someone who is vaguely repulsed, no, pretty intensely repulsed by boxing, like scared of boxing movies because they're going to show Raging Bull close-ups of, you know, like people's jaws being broken at close range. Just basically, I'm just way too much of a wimp to even face the fact that boxing exists. <laughs> I was very fascinated to get inside the brain of a person, a regular person who's kind of experiencing that aggression and those like rushes of, of rage. And it was really beautifully evoked. But, but one of my questions to you was going to be, so after that Vic experience, did you rethink the fantasy boxing camp idea? Yeah, I was scared. I was like, what did I get myself into here? And, and these people at the boxing camp, I know you don't go to a boxing camp weekend unless you kind of want to beat the crap out of somebody was my assumption. That's not why I was going. I was more curious about things inside of me. And that turned out some people were more on that tip. But uh, I, I had this assumption that people were going because they really wanted to just go beat the crap out of strangers. And I got scared because I didn't know who I'd be up against and, and how serious it would be. And I could tell that Vic was even taking a little bit easy on me. And so, yeah, I got a little bit apprehensive about, about going there after that. I mean, I was like, what did I get myself into? What did I ask for here? Because what was curious to me was, even before I ever did any of this, when I would get frustrated at things, like I'm trying to write a story and it's frustrating and it's bumping up against my own limitations or I'm I'm feeling like an idiot about something I said last night at a party, I would have this urge to kind of hit something, to kind of like slap my fist against something. And I asked around, I, am I weird? Am I a especially violent person? I asked around and no, I, basically every male friend said, yes, I have that urge too. And almost all of the women I asked said the same thing. I have When I get really frustrated or, or I feel like I said something I want to take back, I just kind of want to hit something. I just pounded a desk with a teddy bear last week for, <laughs> about, for about a full minute. <laughs> And Dana, I think of you as like one of the that least violent so people I can Dana. imagine. <laughs> but I can't that imagine so that Dana. translating into wanting to punch someone in the face. You well, know? no, I didn't. I didn't. So I, that that urge is not to hit a specific person in the face. It's just to hit something, right? It's, that, it's the same urge you right. have when you pound that teddy bear. It's, it, it doesn't take any sort of real corporeal form. It's just I kind of want to hit something, mm -hmm. some vague thing. And it's nearly oh universal. And I, so now I need to ask Julia and Steve, you must, now that since I'm talking about this question. I feel like people. I'm one of the women you asked about this when you were on this uh, psychological vision quest and that I told you at the time that I'm not very violent and I'm not a very angry person. But I, now that I think about it, I do have that thing sometimes where you're just so frustrated I feel like I associate it more with frustration than yeah. rage, where I'm just like, ah, you know, and you, I, I definitely would like kind of like pound my fist That's against the side of a door. Yeah. There's and I loved your point, Seth, that it solves your cerebral problems as a writer in no way whatsoever. There's like, no solution I know, whatsoever. I can't write this paragraph. I'll punch a wall. There's such a wide gulf mm -hmm. between the problem like and that solution. Well, so I feel like it does solve the frustration thing in a little bit. Like if, if life just stacks up and you're aggravated, 
again, it's like not anger for me. It's like it's like you're just like, oh, everything's not going right. Like to just like, yeah. For some Why? Reason, the image Where I does was, that like, come from? I don't know, but there's like a release to it, which is, yeah, very alien to like how one conducts life as a modern human. But I mean, I mean, we, we, we should be able to ev psych this a little bit, right? I mean, every, I mean, these Marvel movies that are making a billion dollars every throw out are essentially about physically larger people who hit harder, right? I mean, it's, it's clearly it's universal, primitive, and, and written at some level into our genetic makeup. I don't have any deeper theory than that. But Yeah, the F psych um, thing would just be essentially that the insurance company that made me so mad would be like the other caveman aggressing me, right? <laughs> and so I take my actual baby bear cub and pound it against a rock. Damn, man, you got to lay off the jasmine tea. I think dial it back Wait, a little. Steve, but what's your, what's your relationship to hitting the wall? Oh, I'm the most internally twisted, violent, unhappy, rageful person who ever lived. Are you kidding? Thank God I was made spasmodic and and weak, uh, you know, to go with it. That is the sign of a benevolent creator right there. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll smash the shit out of any random object. <laughs> the day's going badly this, enough. This is starting into a very violent Catfest episode. I mean... It's interesting because I do think there's a gender thing here. Like, I have no fascination with boxing. I mean, I loved your piece and it, and the kind of psychological journey you were on, but the sport befuddles me. I went to cover a boxing match once and, like, knew nothing about what I was doing or how to look at boxing and didn't learn very much despite my best efforts. Like, it's a thing, this archetypal thing that men are fascinated with in a way that, like, women are not. I'm, I'm generally not prone to gender pronouncements on this show but like as a sport as an ethos as a culture oh the glory days remember when it was the biggest sport uh, you know like there's just this kind of whole fascination and of course we're talking about this the week after the Pacquiao Mayweather fight which I presume none of us but Dana watched but I watched um, it <laughs> um, <laughs> Dana and her teddy bear yeah and me and my teddy bear tuned in <laughs> so were just cho- choreographing all the uh, punches but we're in this moment of a larger cultural fascination with it because this big fight that hadn't happened for ages finally happened but um, I, if we all have this urge like there there does it does feel like there's a male prerogative around channeling it and a male association with the sports that most directly relate to it more so I don't know is, 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 is boxing something you guys have been fascinated with for a long time or not not professional sport I mean it's I, I don't watch it a ton I watched it on Saturday night because I you know it was th- the biggest fight in decades everyone told me and I could appreciate the grace and, and the, the skill and on a level that I might not have done before I tried boxing before and that, and that was sort of amazing to watch I didn't think that's a particularly entertaining fight but I I do think there's a male aspect of asserting dominance through physicality that maybe is not quite as endemic to women. You know, it's not something that I see women doing as much as I see men doing. Like when men body up to each other and like stand tall or go chest to chest, that's not something I frequently see women do when they have a dispute with someone. But it's worth mentioning in that connection that one of the people you fight at the camp is a woman who outweighs you by, I don't know, 45 pounds? She's the women's world heavyweight champion. And yes. uh, Okay, that's, that's a pretty impressive woman to fight. But still, you boxed with a woman at the camp and one of the coaches or sort of the, the the former pros who was leading the camp was also a woman. Yeah, absolutely. There are, ton- there are tons of female professional boxers at the camp, like four or five of them, actually. And they're all amazingly talented and could all beat the shit out of me. Even the ones who weighed 30 pounds less than me could have beat the shit out of me. I wouldn't have been able to lay a glove on them. So they're just so quick and agile. And it's become a popular sport for women to practice as well, as far as a fitness 
Yeah, and there were women. There were women campers at the camp, amateurs who came. One of the women was a, a, an attorney from St. Louis in her fifties who liked to do amateur boxing on weekends and also did kickboxing. And she loved the fitness of the sport, but she did like the competition of it also. It was, you know, a lot of I, a lot of the people, the campers I talked to, the men that I talked to who are campers who did this on weekends or did this on after work during the week. Um, a lot of them mentioned feeling bullied as kids or feeling like they had something to prove. Or, or one of the main um, people I talk about is this. Um, psychotherapist named Scott, who I became friends with at the camp. He's a 65-year-old guy, lives on the Upper West Side, and he does rage work with his psychotherapy patients. He has them punching pillows in order to get some of that stuff out. And he himself, you know, told me that he'd been abused as a child. And so I do think a lot of the people who really get into it, there is a, very much a psychological element to it. Because yes, of course, there, there's like, there's strategy to the sport, there's incredible fitness level required, there's a grace to it that is amazing to watch when you see someone who really knows what they're doing. But you can channel all those things into, say, basketball. You know, you don't need to do it in a sport where you're hitting someone, getting hit in the head. And so in order to want to do that, it's got to come from inside you. It's something that you need to prove to yourself or prove to other people, or it's a fascination you have. I think, I mean, and in the end, you give it up, right? Because you feel like connecting to and indulging and strengthening these impulses, channeling these sort of violent impulses in a more specific and human-facing direction starts to not feel so good to you, right? Yeah, it's not healthy. Instead of, instead of wanting to hit some vague, undefined thing when I was frustrated, I started thinking about throwing like a, a very careful, like perfect form left hook at something. And that something became to look a little more like, you know, an opponent in the ring. And so I think it was giving more, it was one step closer to actually hitting something as opposed to some vague you know, objects. And that was not so great. But even more than that, I really didn't like getting hit in the head. Like, I really didn't enjoy that. I, my job requires my brain, and I'm already just barely smart enough to do it. And getting any dumber <laughs> would really be an impediment <laughs> to my career. So I just, I didn't like that. Getting hit in the stomach, it, it, I think, is long-term not as bad, but it hurts a lot more. For like two days, your stomach just hurts, like a sharp pain. That's no fun. And I just, I didn't like hitting people. At first, there's a thrill when you connect, and you, you find the opening and you hit it hard and you land a solid punch and there's a thrill of just accomplishment of competence that comes with that but pretty soon I was like wow but that's a I don't want to hit Scott in the head like that's not great why am I doing that so it just was not the sport for me after all but yeah I can't let you go without asking you one quick question though I'm very tempted to do it but I'm worried that if I did would I lose my taste for intellectual bullying if you did actual bullying, <laughs> if you did, no, well, if I did, <laughs> if I if I got my yayas out in the ring, would I no longer need to achieve dominance through verbal bullying? I think it would just add to your arsenal, be another arrow in your quiver. You could be like, well, not only will I, you, you know, <laughs> take a scalpel to your arguments, I also could beat you up. But luckily, because Steve's up in oh Gedge, we don't have to actually duck his flying fists, just his words. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, the piece is what it's like to hit a man. Uh, by Seth Stevenson. Seth, uh, thanks so much for coming in. It was, as always, a complete uh, delight. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do you got? The Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Honest Company. As parents, we all want to give our kids the healthiest start in life, but that's not always so easy 
on a day-to-day basis. The Honest Company provides an answer. Their products are safe and made with high-quality ingredients with the health and happiness of our loved ones in mind. And their bundles make it very easy. Just go to freehonest.com, choose the bundle that's right for you, and get the products you want when you want them delivered right to your door. Not only do they have the cutest diapers, but also household cleaners, bath and body products, and more. All are safe and actually work. And we actually have a special deal for you, Culture Gab Fest listeners. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day, and they'll send you a free aromatic soy candle worth $20. Just use the code CULTURE at checkout at freehonest.com, and you'll get one of Honest's favorite items free. Go to freehonest.com and use the code CULTURE. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. Okay, moving on. The youth of America have been whispering about something they call the dad bod for years, so asserts Amanda Hess somewhat implausibly in a Slate piece. She goes on to say, the 19-year-old Clemson University sophomore named Mackenzie Pearson published an explanatory essay, Why Girls Love the Dad Bod, on the college-focused website The Odyssey. And the term has broken out of teenage vernacular and into our general population. Julia Turner, I can only train the focus of my disbelief and scorn upon you. Um, <laughs> Hit what, me. What is the dad bod? Do you believe this is, is, is this, like, is this, has it really gone full meme? Is it really something out there in the world? Or is it just Tuesday and we need some copy? Uh, well, can't both things be true? <laughs> I think there are a couple of different factors here. So first of all, this college student wrote a charming and troubling ode to the dad bod. And now that college journalism is on the internet, woe for college journalists. All right, but wait, well, let me stop you very quickly. For for those, you know, the, the tiny vanishing minority of listeners out there who don't know what TF the dad bod is, could just give me a working definition. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Dad bod. Well, we should quote Mackenzie here, but she asserts that basically it's uh, like you're a guy and you don't have a paunch, but you're just got a little meat on top of the muscle. Like maybe you used to work out, but now you eat pizza or maybe you still do both. But there's just you're a, a football player who doesn't play football anymore. That's one definition she gives of the body type. There's just a little bit of like a fleshy unformedness to the dad bod. Basically, it's like out-of-shape men are the most attractive men to me, a lissom young college student. That is what the position of the individual piece was, and that may explain everything you need to understand about why it went viral. Basically, some young woman said, I think old man bodies are hot, and then the people of the internet, many of whom are old men, were like, whoa, amazing, (laughs) and passed it around. And the whole thing was very much aided by the coinage dad bod, which was not, which apparently had shown up on Urban Dictionary and been bandied about a bit among some youngster circles prior to this piece appearing in the student newspaper. But that, what a great phrase. Like, what a, just a beautiful six letters, just a a gorgeous phoneme, dad bod, you know? (laughs) Like, I I feel like if she had called it, like... It's almost a palindrome. If she'd called it, like, man gut or punch bro <laughs> like we would not be having this conversation it's true and even to call what Mackenzie Pearson wrote on the Clemson website an essay is really pushing it it's like three or four short paragraphs <laughs> in the form of a listicle so the fact that this somehow became viral at this moment I just think has to do with the, the funness of that word and you know the concept and how people have have run with it I mean even the dad thing is kind of absurd because she's talking about men of all different ages right and says herself that her own father is very fit and trim and disturbingly adds so much so that people think we're a couple when we're out together which gives like a little bit of a strange, creepy feel to that initial dad bod post. But plenty of the people she's talking about are not dads. They're just like younger guys who by the standards of, I guess, Hollywood buff ab 
culture are a little doughy. Right. So that has to be, to the extent that this has any basis in fact whatsoever, this has to be a critical point that it's a reflection on fatigue in the face of the perfectly chiseled male, right? That, that somehow that fetish has played its has played itself out a little bit and you know and there's something about being but what is it about being slightly out of shape that, well I mean, I mean i'm just trying to figure out what does it first of all is this thing true at all or are we just spinning wheels here or and if it is true why like what like what's you know what's the appeal of the slightly out of sh- like but like, this is a sweet spot you have to hit right like if you're absolutely ripped and in awesome shape you don't have a dad bod if you're a completely doughy overweight slob you're not a dad bod it's like it's 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 this in-between thing but anyway take it away asking for a friend steve metcalf i you know i don't i do not think this is an actual trend i mean i think like men and women are attracted to many different things i think this is a clever framing of a sort of body that is a extremely common right like probably lots of people are not morbidly obese and not like you know insanely diamond cut fit either they're like fall in this lumpy middle and this is a girl saying like this lumpy middle is pretty attractive to me you know the the way the initial piece is framed has some troubling kind of insecurity underpinning it where it's like i prefer to be with a schlubby guy so that i can be the pretty one i prefer to be with a schlubby guy so i don't feel self-conscious about how i look in a bathing suit because they look so jacked with their i don't even know the names of all those muscles that one sees that felt not empowering or body positive in in various ways but like i you know people are attracted to all different kinds of things i don't i do not think this is an actual movement at the same time i think it does two things interestingly simultaneously right it both affirms the right of men to look like schlubs and still get laid which is like an irritating truism of the, of the centuries and yet it also objectifies men in a way that's new right yeah. like having a name having a type saying, like, if you have X physical attributes, you will receive Y, you know, set of acclaim from random Clemson sophomores. That feels new. So at the one hand, this feels incredibly irritating and patriarchal and, like, um, you know, listen, women we've seen um, shown. I I just watched part of Chef this weekend in which Scarlett Johansson and John Favreau, is that who plays the lead in Chef? Yeah. In which, like, John Favreau is having an affair with Scarlett Johansson and it's just uh, like the the <laughs> talk about fantasy camp the physical the male female inverse of that would just never ever happen on any screen ever and that's galling right so this is affirming a sexist norm and yet objectifying men which feels like reverse sexism in a way that's slightly new so that's what i mean to the degree there's anything to get your head around here that's the thing to get your head around and i'm not sure i love a world where it's like great let's objectify and have names for types of male bodies too but i do think that there's a little bit of a it's nice it may not be a very well thought out feminist manifesto that's for sure and as one feminist writer pointed out what would we be saying if suddenly mom bod was being talked about by all kinds of men is like I love me a oh, chunky milf. mom bod right yeah I guess that's the milf thing right but yeah, I mean but it's considered the milf, sexist the milf body is not the dad bod body oh yeah the milf is more like the, the working out right it's sort of like the, the, yeah, the, the milf has like mom. Pilates bod I think the milf is yeah, not no, the milf I, is I, not I allowed to go to sea but I'm just saying however we would we would conceptualize the mom bod if the mom bod was being passed around as a meme, there would be talk of sexism, right? And so this is because it's a reversal of expectations. But I actually do think that 
it may do a tiny bit of good in that there is starting to be more of an expectation in Hollywood movies, for example, that Chris Pratt is going to get himself looking like a superhero for Guardians of the Galaxy, right? He wasn't fine before in his Parks and Recreation, in my opinion, much more adorable, slightly bigger version. Same thing with Jason Segel, who got really gaunt for that movie with Cameron Diaz. I wrote about it in my review. It made me really sad. And I missed the chunky, naked Jason Segel from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. So as somebody myself who is rather fond of a a, a chunky comedian i have to say i mean i think i embrace the dad bod i'm going with it all right well first of all i love that the it that it doesn't exist but we each have a elaborate theory about it that's a, a new a new height has been reached for by, uh, by the gap fest so let Wait, me we should my... do a show that's all just fake topics one week <laughs> we do it every week julia so um here's my here's my theory for this thing that doesn't exist um Okay, so the, at the most basic level, it's certainly it's got to be a rejection of a certain kind of like preening male narcissism, workout narcissism. But that I think there's something more going on. And the three interesting things to me are dad, body, and the fact that it's very American. So it, first of all, dad, you cannot get around the connotation of dad. It, it, even though there are younger men with dad bods, it invokes older men which is, I agree, is a little creepy, but what's interesting about it is it's almost an oxymoron, right? Dad bod. Because, Julia, you talk about this, you know, the millennia of sexism that go into schlubby men and beautiful women. Well, why? That was that was the relationship between a certain form of female power, which was sexuality, uniting up with a certain, int- or being traded for a certain form of male power, which was, uh, which was money or status. And this invokes the middle-aged man without also then going into money and power. So implicit in it to me is the rejection of the kind of hedge fund ideal of uh, of um, Fifty Shades of Grey, right? That fantasy for some people is, an, I would imagine, I pray, is completely inert of the superpower, you know, super rich, older man uh, taking up the woman. So it's it sort of in its own perverse way, it rejects the princess fantasy implicit in that. And then finally, it's very American, I think, for being focused on the body in this particular way, that it, that it implies a very American norm of male sexiness. And so to me, it just reinforces this like extremely, I think, American ideal that has to filter through, oh, the hard body is what makes, hard body status or money is what makes men sexy. And that's why this fights against that meme. And that to me is a little sad. I guess so. I mean, I do. I think the your point about the financial inversion is really fascinating, right? Like the dad having the primary identifier of a middle-aged man be his daddom rather than his career or his status or his money or his sugar daddiness or, you know, the the sort of the dad of dad is really the like playground and barbecue dad, not the sex fantasy dad. So that's fascinating. But I think the like micro moment when a man had to be as cut as a woman is like eight years that started 12 years ago yeah, or something. Right. It's like, sort of like, boo-hoo, long time you guys had to worry about it. Yeah, you know, it's like this rejection, you know, the, the, the you know, part of... In straight culture, anyway. I mean, I think in gay culture, there's a very different set of expectations there's, for I think bonds. It goes, I think, I think it's, it's, it's been out there since since Top Gun, Tom Cruise and Top Gun since 86. Yeah, okay. It's, I, been part of the, it's been part of the culture, though possibly not at all dominant or exclusive, the way being a sexy bikini friendly, you know, a woman with a bikini friendly body. Right. And it's true, actually, if you look back at women's bikini bodies, I mean, even Raquel Welch, if you put her, you know, who's like the ultimate bikini hottie of the 70s, like her body is not 
her body's not Megan Fox's body, you know, like the decreasing humanness of the bodies we revere, I guess, is (laughs) is a problem of both genders. But, it, you know, so I don't know that I think like America has lionized, you know, whatever those little triangular muscles on the side of the abs (laughs) are since the age of Washington or anything. But um, Jefferson was cut. (laughs) No, but I think it does. But no, I know I don't want to cut you off, but it just very quickly. I just mean a certain... Like, you know, even even Marlboro Man or or Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, like dad as someone who has become one. Right. Dad is an enormously desexualizing uh, for totally healthy reasons is a, is a very desexualizing category to be put in. And you put yourself in it when you're a father and when you're acting as a father around, you know, kids, you, you, you know, and, and it's, it's the, it is completely the natural arc of, of life, but it's interesting that that is being resexualized here. That's the, you know, it's, it's, the two words are fighting against one another in this interesting way. Right, right. I mean, maybe that's part of what makes the term electric and pass aroundable. I mean, you're right, Dana, that there was the initial kind of creepiness of the girl's description of her relationship with her dad and the piece. And um, maybe that's part of the frisson. I know. The embrace of, of daddom as a, like, center stage part of American manhood strikes me as a as a good. So if we can, you know sexualize that and make it feel less emasculated. I think it's probably overall a win for culture to the degree that this is a win for anything (laughs) or an idea that has any depth or value at all, apart from just being fun to say. All right. Why don't you just come to facebook.com slash culture fest and talk to us about dad bod. Do you have one? Do you know one? Do you care about it? Is it a real thing? Let us know. We're very curious. All right. Well, now is the moment in our program where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? Well, my endorsement this week is connected with the montage of Heck, Kurt Cobain documentary we all watched. So as I mentioned, it ends on a song from this legendary MTV Unplugged performance that became a best-selling album. And uh, and the song that, that it ends on is this song that's strongly associated with Lead Belly, although he didn't actually write the song. It's an old folk song that he sort of brought back into to circulation. It's that song that I believe on the album is called Where Did You Sleep Last Night? But it's also in some versions called In the Pines. And many, many people have covered it now. Anyway, this all leads to my endorsement, which is, you know, obviously you should know that unplugged version. It's a beautiful cover of the song. But you should also get the Smithsonian Folkways five CD set of Lead Belly's Complete Works that was just released a few weeks ago from this great folk label. Um, it's available also, of course, as a, as a download from the Internet. But I kind of want the box set because I'm sure it's full of great liner notes and amazing, you know, sort of studies on, on Lead Belly. But he's one of those figures who, even if you think you don't know a Lead Belly song, you do. And you've sung it many times. I mean, the songs associated with him include Good Night, Irene and The Midnight Special and all sorts of songs that, you know, I can't actually guarantee that he wrote all of these songs. I'm not sure which are more sort of like folk songs he was carrying through, but he was definitely a person who helped the form to survive and is just an incredible, incredible singer and guitarist and was a huge influence on, on Kurt Cobain as well. That sounds amazing. Oh, absolutely. Um, Julia, what do you have? Okay, well, before I endorse, I have a correction already to something I said earlier in this podcast. Producer Anne tells me that, in fact, the name of George Herbert Walker Bush's dog, memoirist dog, was not Socks. Socks, of course, was the Clinton's cat. The dog of the Bush ones was Millie, and it was Millie who wrote her her tell-all about life in the Bush White House. So apologies to Socks, Millie, the Bushes, the Clintons, uh, and Felix. But now we've set the record straight on pets and potential pet memoirists. All right. My endorsement this week is Hamilton. I just went this weekend and saw the production of Hamilton at the Public Theater downtown in New York. Uh, And the production actually then closed on Sunday, um, but is returning to Broadway later this summer. 
it is one of the most exhilarating, extraordinary, transformative, marvelous experiences I've ever had in a theater. And basically every single person listening to this podcast in every corner of the globe should like plan a trip to New York City to see this production when it comes to Broadway. I mean, I suppose you can wait and see if it uh, if the reviews suggest it's transferred well to a bigger arena because it's it was pretty small and intimate at the public, but it's the creation of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was the force behind the musical In the Heights a couple of years ago, which won a bunch of Tonys. But this is a portrait of Alexander Hamilton and sort of a reclamation of a lesser studied founding father done essentially as a hip-hop musical, although I guess he's explicitly requested that it not be referred to as a hip-hop musical. And it does use a bunch of different musical forms. There's hip-hop, there's rhyme, there's sort of show tunes, there's kind of like 60s Britpop. There's all kinds of musical influences in it. And it's basically an opera. There's no like chit-chat between the scenes and then they launch into rapping. And the performances are extraordinary. I think a lot of the original actors are moving to Broadway. But it's it's... It's just an amazing, amazing production, um, like exhilarating and transfixing and transformative. And I've had the tunes in my head for days and it's great. All right, Steve. I am so excited to see that. I really do hope we get in and do it for the show. Um, I think we're going to make every effort to, to do that. But um, OK, so I have two things I want to endorse very quickly. They were both on the Internet this week. The first is uh, as part of the Opinionator blog uh, for The New York Times. Dan, I'm very curious whether you saw this uh, academic named Christy Wampole posted something called the Conference Manifesto. No, I didn't see. And it begins, we are weary of academic conferences we are humanists who recognize very little humanity in the conference format and content. And it goes on just bullet point after bullet point. You know, our jaws have hung in disbelief as a speaker tries to squeeze a 30-minute talk into a 20-minute slot by reading too fast to be understood. We have been one of two attendees at a panel. And it, it's actually quite funnier than the lines that I chose to read. It gets funnier and funnier, but also you feel as though she is absolutely hitting a very real bullseye. And that something has happened, especially in the humanities, to conference culture that's totally endemic and representative of what's happened to, to the whole of the study of the humanities. I think it's from someone who's, a, you know, it's not a sour grapes adjunct or an exile like you and me. It's someone who's in it and succeeding in it, who just finds its protocols and rituals have become routine and and preposterous and seem to serve no need whatsoever. It rings true to someone like me who's been away from it for a long time. But I cannot imagine that this is said prejudicially or written prejudicially. Um, but it's enjoyable in and of itself. It will certainly inflame some pre-existing prejudices, which may not be entirely healthy. But my sense is that it that it is telling a kind of important truth. And uh, again, it, academia is faced with a kind of inside-outside problem, which is from the inside, the people who have tenure and a decent job and, and middle-class job security and are producing scholarship in order to get that, think of it as an entirely successful system. And everyone outside of it, which includes people very close to the inside of it, people like me who still teach in universities occasionally, adjuncts, students and graduate students, undergraduates who might major in English, um, who are incredulous at the entitlement of the people inside who feel no need to make what they're doing more vital to the people outside of it. And the defense is always, we are credentialed literary scholars, we know what we are doing, you are Philistines, and that no longer flies, uh, to my mind, um, because the, the truth is the English and the complet and the history and the art history and the philosophy departments ought to be absolutely not only central to 
the American university, but to the American experience, and they aren't anymore. So I recommend this as something that will hopefully stimulate that debate uh, in addition to some prejudices. But the other thing I want to um, endorse very wholeheartedly is uh, an op-ed in the LA Times by the writer Caleb Crane, who's just, I mean, what can you say, just an exemplary intellectual journalist about the Charlie Hebdo controversy, which lives on now in the form of a Penn controversy, that Penn is giving some sort of freedom of expression award to the Charlie Hebdo, the massacred Charlie Hebdo cartoonists. Now a fairly large number in excess of 100 and maybe approaching or in excess of 200, I'm not sure, Penn members have decided not to attend the event as a way of indicating they do not believe this that Hebdo deserves this uh, award, no doubt for a variety of reasons, one of which is they either find it too ju- juvenile or p- potentially too uh, racist to earn it. This has inspired a lot of writers, including many for whom I have unlimited respect, saying that the Penn dissent is ill thought out, possibly itself childish, um, and kind of intellectually childish or, or, or immature. I, I don't want to go deep into my feelings about the about the uh, award going to um, Hebdo. I wanted to say quickly that it just seems to me that the work of an intellectual begins where there is otherwise unanimity. And that writers, some of whom are, George Carroll Oates, I mean, some of these people are not lightweights, are deciding not to honor Charlie Hebdo as a signal that something needs to be thought through. And we can't simply thump our copy of, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes and and John Milton's Area Pagitica and say simply that freedom of speech is an absolute value. And when it's under threat or attack, you know, we must defend it. Everyone believes that. It's the the role of an intellectual to find those wrinkles in opinion, those fissures in, in opinion where two things have to be reconciled but don't reconcile and the work of thinking has to take place. And it seems to me of the people who've written about this, Caleb Prane was the rare person who really took up the challenge and said, I'm going to actually try to out somewhat out loud and vulnerably think this through. And whether or not I think the award should go to these people whether or not a dissent is a considered or ill-considered thing. And it's just a beautiful piece of writing. I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's called Charlie Hebdo Cartoonist, Heroes Are Racist. The answer is not that simple. Exactly right. If the answer were simple, one would not need to write about it. And it offended me that some people who I really admire wrote about it as if it were simple. Question, it isn't. So a huge shout out to Caleb Crane. It's an exemplary piece of writing. Um, all right. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, so good to have you back. That's what you think for now. <laughs> wait, wait till she pummels us, teddy bear style. Julia, as always, a total pleasure. Yeah, I didn't let you get. Uh, I didn't let you miss me, so I'm just still here. <laughs> That's true. But um, a pleasure as always. <laughs> All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pine, in the pine, where the sun never shines. I wish you would. 
Who not to? 